Good afternoon, New Life Brisbane. How are we doing? Wow, you're all here and alive, ready for the Word of God this afternoon. It's my privilege to share with you on a topic close to my heart. I better introduce myself first. For those of you who don't know me, my name's James, one of the pastors uh, here at New Life. Um, part of my role is to oversee our creative teams across Brisbane, Coolangatta and the Gold Coast. So you've probably seen me playing the piano and leading worship a little bit up here, but today I get to preach on a topic that's close to my heart. I actually worked for Open Doors, who is one of our missions partners for four years, immediately before I started with New Life in January of this year. And so this is a topic, it usually gets me a bit emotional, so we're going to go on that journey together this afternoon, if that's okay. Why don't we pause and pray? We've already prayed a few times, but why don't we commit this time around the Word together today? Lord Jesus, I thank you for your presence. I thank you that you care about your church more than we do. And so God, I pray that you would move upon our hearts this afternoon and come and awaken something inside of us towards our care and our concern, our prayers for our brothers and sisters around the world who share our faith, but they don't share our freedom. And I pray in return, we might get the gift of a newfound fervor and passion for your gospel, that where we've become a little bit tired or complacent, a little bit weary, maybe a bit cold, that you would fan the flames of our heart again this afternoon as we pursue you and we share your word in our corner of the world here in Brisbane. We commit this time to you. In your name we pray. Amen. I'd love to start by telling you a story of a group of people I met a few years ago. Amazing, amazing followers of Jesus. It was in Egypt, actually in downtown Cairo. I don't know if anyone in the room has been to Cairo. Awesome. I wouldn't expect anything less from you, Isaac. That's awesome. Uh, Cairo is a crazy, crazy city. 16 million people jammed into this tiny area. And it's a 70% Muslim-majority nation, Egypt, and 30% are uh, Coptic Orthodox Christians, almost entirely the other 30%. And so there is this very tangible tension between the two faiths. I need to kind of pause here for a moment. I grew up in uh, a kind of faith tradition that I'm not particularly proud of, where I had this axiom in the back of my mind that all Muslims were out to kill me. I don't know if any of you can identify with that. Our media kind of portrays a bit of an image, and that's certainly what was in my mind as I was going to a Muslim-majority nation, that I felt unsafe, I was unsure, but I was met by some of the most hospitable, beautiful, welcoming people that I've ever met. And so the idea that all Muslims are terrorists is absolutely false. But in this story, a young man had succumbed to an extremist ideology. What often happens where there's an absence of literacy or immense poverty, uh, people will be taught whatever uh, the local imam wants people to believe and they can't fact check that against the Quran because they can't read or write. And so there's this uh, massive extremism as a result. That's what happened in this story. He was 21 and he took it upon himself to kill a prominent Christian leader in downtown Cairo. Now, in his faith tradition, there was one building, a mosque, and one leader. And so he thought it would be the same as he strapped explosives to himself, and he went to the local Christian place of worship. Uh, he made his way through a few security checkpoints. I still can't figure out how that happened, uh, but he did. And he made his way through the first gate, and his plan was immediately thwarted, because instead of there being one building where he thought the leader might be, there was actually 25 buildings in this compound. So he had to change his plans quite dramatically. And he stumbled around, listening for where he could hear the most sound coming from. It was a Thursday morning, and on Thursdays in that church, the women gather to pray 
and worship. There was 150 women joining for prayer that morning. So he could hear them singing in the distance and he began moving towards them. There was one man present who was a security guard sitting in the gateway to the chapel. And you could see the man coming towards him and almost immediately knew something wasn't right. So he motioned for him to stop and to turn back, but the man continued to approach. Eventually, in an act of profound bravery, the security guard stood to his feet and he rushed towards the man. The bomber detonated the vest and the security guard was killed instantly. But this triggered a chain reaction and the walls of the chapel collapsed and the roof collapsed on the women that were there worshipping. And 27 women lost their lives on that day. You know, we see these kind of attacks and bombings all over the news and they can become a little bit distant, two-dimensional. But I can tell you, standing there in the very room where those people died was one of the most harrowing, traumatic moments of my life. There's an image of uh, me and our team uh, standing and praying for these women just on the next slide. Thanks, Cass. You can see there that these are are real people with real families. There was two 13-year-old twins that went to church and mum decided to stay at home. And they were killed. Never made it home. A four-year-old daughter. And story after story had us sitting there uh, weeping for hours and hours. The next image shows the incredible damage in a building centuries old. Uh, Shrapnel marks all up the sides of the building and again apologies if this is a bit graphic for some people in the room but uh, that is those women's blood against the wall there behind a sheet of perspex so that we might continue to remember them and honour their sacrifice. Again the overwhelming horror and trauma of the moment was overwhelming. But what was more overwhelming is what you'll see on the next slide is the fact that I was there on a Thursday morning a few months later 150 women still choosing to gather to pray and worship, despite the fact that ISIS had only recently labelled Cairo their next target. Another attack or bombing was imminent, but these women in absolute bravery choose to say, you know what, I don't care what you say, no matter what you say, I will continue to worship my Jesus. The sound of their worship, their singing, their prayers is something I won't soon forget. You'll see there on the other side of the scaffolding, uh, there are about 10, 15 men working behind the scenes to repair the church while the women sung on the other side. It was a profound moment. As we were there, our partner whispered in my ear and said, there's a woman I want you to meet. Her photo's on the next slide. And her name's Maria. I want you to look at her face and remember Maria. Look at that smile. As I was walking across the courtyard towards her, her story became apparent. You see, although she's got that smile on her face, she's still wearing black clothes, which shows that she's in mourning. And as I got closer, I could see the photo around her neck was of a man, her husband, the security guard, who gave his life on that day so that many, many more lives wouldn't be lost. I want you to think about your own faith journey for a moment. Maybe think about what Maria went through on that day. First of all, do you know Jesus? Because I can tell you the thing that Maria was able to cling through through that trial was her faith in a loving God. I'd love to invite you across this sermon 
to enter into a relationship with Jesus. It would be my absolute privilege to introduce you this afternoon to him. But more than that, maybe some of you grew up in church or a Christian home and you don't have a robust faith where you could say that I would cling to him in an incident or a situation like that. Maybe that's your story that you want to draw nearer to him and have a deep faith in him so that you can withstand any trial or persecution or storm that might come to you. More than that, I want you to consider the fact, if you were Maria, would you choose to continue to worship in the same church where your husband lost his life? Or would you run away from community? Maria clung to her community of faith. And I could see to her that that was the joy and the hope in her life, was that beautiful group of people that prayed for her and supported her and encouraged her. More than that, you know, Maria had one request to her church family. It was, in my husband's honour, can I do his job? So the day I met her, she was the security guard, sitting at the door to the cathedral, at the exact place where her husband lost his life. More than just doing a job, though, with that smile on her face, welcoming people to church, encouraging them, praying for them, welcoming them. And I've never thought the same way about the people rostered on to welcome at the door after I met that. I don't know if we give those people a bit of a shout out, but I love you and I salute you. And think about the fact that you do an important job as you welcome people to church. Think of Maria, would you, next time you're doing your job. And how amazing is it that we can gather here today in absolute freedom without any fear of an attack or a bombing or an incident. Sometimes we can take those things for granted. Amen. Well, Open Doors works with people like Maria, strengthening them to remain in some of the most difficult places all around the world. In this scenario, Open Doors were actually the first responders on the ground before even the emergency responders were able to help and care for people like Maria. It's a difficult, long journey, but in that moment, providing emergency trauma care, uh, feeding her family, and then helping her find a stable income. And so that's the kind of work we do. But Maria's story isn't isolated. What we're going to do now is take a look at the current state of persecution around the world. You know, when I was growing up, I read a little bit about Nero and the Roman emperors, and I kind of thought persecution was something that happened in the distant past. I didn't realize how prevalent it is around the world today. This next quote is from Open Doors, and the research states that over 340 million Christians... Now, you just heard that in a video... But that's a huge number. One in every eight Christians around the world experience a high to severe level of persecution every day of their life. Profound, isn't it? And again, I used to think that I understood persecution from the news. It was all about violence and bombings, killings. Uh, But these next two words are important, violence and pressure. This is important to be informed so that we know how to pray. It's not just violence that is difficult for Christians. In fact, our research showed that it was the pressure, the long-term squeeze of persecution that was much more difficult to withstand than simply violent attacks. And pressure is measured across uh, a variety of spheres in people's lives. You might not know that many Christians around the world can't vote. I met some women uh, that were Syrian and Iraqi refugees, and when they had converted Uh, Their family took their identities off them, so they were actually stateless people. They didn't exist on the system anymore. They're not eligible for any refugee resettlements because they literally don't exist on a system. That's the kind of persecution and pressure people face simply for following Jesus all around the world. I'll give you an example of what that looks like in a couple of countries. We'll just go really quickly before we jump into the Word this afternoon. 
Uh, first of all is North Korea. Some of you might know that North Korea has been the most difficult country to follow Jesus now for 20 years in a row. Isn't that amazing? 20 years in a row. There's a well-known saying in North Korea, where two or more are gathered, surely one is a spy. So church looks a little bit different. <laughs> Everyone's always suspicious of everyone else. We heard a story of six-year-old children in a classroom, and the teacher would hold up a Bible and say, have any of you seen one of these before? And if a child even flinches in response, the entire family is taken away. But despite the fact that it's so dangerous, 300,000 Christians are alive in North Korea. Beautiful. The light advancing in the darkness. Of those 300,000, our sources estimated 70,000 Christians are sitting in a prison cell right now. Doesn't look like an Australian jail, though. We're talking some of the most horrific human rights abuses known to man. So if you want something to pray for, for the persecuted church, pray that the North Korean church would be able to continue to pursue their faith in Jesus despite the most horrific challenges they're facing. Uh, the second most dangerous country to follow Jesus is Afghanistan. And uh, that's obviously been put on the front page of our newspapers recently because of the Taliban rule. But previous to that, it was already a crazy chaotic state for Christians. And uh, we had reports even this week of many pastors that were preparing. They had intel that this week the Taliban was was going to kill them this week. They're facing their literal imminent death as we speak. I want you to think about your faith. Would you endure that? You're literally preparing to meet Jesus this week is the case in Afghanistan. Finally, in this section, I'll mention India because this one's quite surprising to many of us. The world's largest democracy in the world is fast becoming one of the most difficult places to be a Christian. It's number 10 on the Open Doors World Watch list. There's a, an extremist Hindu group called the RSS that have infiltrated government right to the highest power. And they have a mission statement. You know, churches have a mission statement. The RSS has a mission statement to eliminate Christianity. They actually set a bit of an early date, in my opinion, the 31st of December this year. They're not doing too well because the church is exploding as a result. It is literally, uh, there are uh, Christians everywhere. And uh, persecution is amazing for the gospel, as you'll hear uh, and John mentioned it in that message, places like Iran, uh, the ninth most dangerous country to follow Jesus, is also the fastest growing evangelical church in the world. Pretty rubbish strategy to oppress the church, in my opinion. Why don't we have a look at uh, what the scriptures say? And again, this is my encouragement for you as we pray, uh, continue to pray this afternoon uh, in Corinthians, where Paul says, when one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. I grew up in church and I used to think that meant uh, an elderly person in our congregation, that we suffer with them. And I never realized that I was so insular in my worldview. And these are our brothers and sisters. And it's time for us as a church to stand up and take our place and intercede for them and pray for them, champion them, cheer them on, uh, believe with them, help them endure, encourage them. And you'll hear from my stories that your prayers make a powerful impact. Let's have a look at the teachings of Jesus. And I call this section the promise of persecution. Some of you in the room might be looking at me thinking, James, that is a dire story. That's a really terrible way to start a sermon. But my encouragement to you is that this shouldn't be a surprise to any of us in our journey of faith following Jesus. Some of you might be on the edge of making a decision to follow Jesus this afternoon, and you're here saying, what the heck? There's a cost to this? 
I think it's so important that we realize that there is a cost to following Jesus. Many of us in the room might not have weighed up that cost before. But let's have a look at what Jesus himself says. John 15, 18. Any Taylor Swift fans in the room, I call this haters gonna hate. Oh, there we go, front row. Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. It's basically saying, you can expect this, guys. It's part and parcel of following me. They hated me first. They're going to have some issues with you as well. He goes on uh, to say in verse 20, but if they persecuted me, listen to this, they will also persecute you. Mike Gore, the CEO of Open Doors, used to ask this provocative question. Maybe there are some reasons we're not being persecuted in our faith. Maybe that's the better question to ask. And I can tell you, all around the world, these people I meet, they are living a closer walk with Jesus to what I see in the Scripture than what the Western church looks like. They're no better than us. They're just different. And I think there's a lot we can learn from them. And again, it's not a bad news story because as you'll see here in the teaching of Paul in just a moment, there is beautiful fruit of our persecution. And why don't we look together across this scripture in Philippians at what that fruit is. And I want to pause for a moment and think about the context to which Paul was speaking into. And more than that, let's think about Paul's life. Many of you know that Paul was referred to as Saul, an expert in the art of persecuting Christians. We know that how? Because he tells us in his own testimony where he says, I was holding the garments of the men that stoned the first Christian martyr. He was there fully complicit in Stephen's death. Christians were terrified of him. And then he had a profound encounter on the road to Damascus. He meets Jesus. And then soon after, he himself is being persecuted. This man is an expert. Literally, he knows both sides of the same coin. And he's sitting in a prison cell here in Philippians, writing to encourage a church that is already or is about to experience extreme persecution. Let's have a look at what he says in Philippians chapter 1. If you've got your Bible, feel free to follow along with me. This is a good passage to highlight in your Bible. He says, but I want you to know, brethren, listen to his pastoral heart here, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Did you catch that? Don't be afraid. That would be alarming. If you were an early first century Christian, your prominent leader is now suddenly in prison and he's saying, you know what? Don't be afraid. This isn't bad news, guys. Because look what's happened here. The things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it's become evident to the whole palace guard, I love this little phrase, and to all the rest, a random nondescript group of people that now know about Jesus, (laughs) that my chains are in Christ and most of the brethren in the Lord, this is now you and me, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Did you catch that? Two beautiful fruit of persecution that I can see in this passage. First of all, persecution advances the gospel. And it's so true all around the world. Places like Nigeria. We heard stories where uh, crazy radical Christians would have to come up with ways to disciple converts because their family will literally try and kill them when they've decided to follow Jesus. True story. That happens all the time. 
I met a man and he told me that they have a facility where they disciple people for six months in an underground uh, facility because uh, if they let them out sooner, they know they will almost certainly die. So they need to be certain that their faith is ready to endure death. This amazing, amazing story where they had a man uh, convert, come to Jesus, come into the facility for six months. And then on the end of this uh, discipleship period together, they have a day of prayer and fasting and they take communion together. And at the end of that time, this man came to them and said, I was lying to you for six months. I wasn't actually a convert. I was sent here to infiltrate this facility and wait until the right time to kill you all. And I had chosen today to be the day. But instead, I had a vision of Jesus while we were praying, and now I want to commit my life to him. Is that not the most wild story you've ever heard? This is daily life for people. And that's what I'm seeing, that persecution advances the gospel, even in the most difficult and the most dangerous parts of the world. But more than that, persecution builds the church. Let's just have a think to what Paul said again in that passage. And this is where I want to begin to push the button for us in the room, myself as well. Having become confident by my chains, I'm much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's my prayer for you this afternoon that you'd leave the room a little bolder to share the good news of Jesus in your workplace, in your community, your neighbours, at your schools. I'll encourage you with one more story. That's from a man I met. His name's Din Van Zen. His photo will be on the screen. He's the guy in the middle. He's the same age as me within three months, which was pretty cool. I was really grappling for anything to find common ground because I found out that I was the first white person Din Van Zen had ever seen. And so for 45 minutes, he was looking at me like I'm really sick or something's, something's desperately wrong with me. There was major cultural barriers. This is also through two translators. So it wasn't the most fluent conversation I've ever had. But alas, birthday within three months, that was pretty cool. Din Van Zen grew up in one of the most remote regions of central Vietnam, the central highlands. And he grew up in a village of only 100 people. That's probably about the capacity of this portion of the room, I reckon. Just think for a moment, your entire world is that village. You probably know everyone. You would certainly know everyone. You're probably related to a fair number of them. Am I right? And in this part of the world, uh, there's actually no written translation of the Bible because there isn't actually a written language. So we have partners there that are working, get your mind around this, to create a written language so that they can then translate the Bible. I don't even know how one does that, but I'm cool with it. But it takes 14 years, too long. So in the meantime, uh, we record audio versions of the Gospels in their native dialect and they put them in these little solar-powered speakers with SD cards so they can hook them on the horns of their cattle while they're plowing their rice paddies and they listen to the gospel wafting over the airwaves. And that's how Din Venzen came to know Jesus through an oxen radio broadcast. Isn't that awesome? And his soul was awakened to Jesus. Beautiful. In a previously unreached part of the world, one soul comes alive to him. So as you do, when you first meet Jesus, you tell everyone about him. He runs back to his village, one family after another, turned to Jesus. Within three months, five families have become Christian. Revival breaking out in the central highlands of Vietnam. And that's where the problems began for Dinh Van Zen. You see, Vietnam is one of five communist countries left in the world. 
an oppressive, oppressive regime trying to stamp out and eradicate Christianity. It's completely contrary to the entire worldview. Uh, and in this part of the world, uh, particularly in these regional areas, the government will tolerate idol worship and that sort of thing because it meets the needs of communism. And so it becomes very obvious when a young man like Din Venzen stops sacrificing food to the idols, everyone knows. And so the other villagers notified the local authorities. It's surprisingly easy to do that because there's a ratio of one police officer for every 12 citizens in this part of the world. Similar to North Korea, very dominant regime. And so they call a town hall meeting, wheel in a very literal propaganda machine, set up PA systems and projector screens, and they begin to roll video after video of malnourished children with their clothes falling off, and they put Din Venzen on stage. And they say, if you allow this man to convert your village to Christianity, this is what will happen to your children. Your crops will cease to produce a harvest your children will die. They do this every night for hours on end for seven nights until the villagers are enraged. They're screaming at him, swearing at him, spitting on him, spitting on his children. The government know our job here is done, so they pack down their PA system and leave town. They can't be seen to actively persecute Christians because it's not good for diplomacy or tourism. And so they let the villagers do their worst. Din Venzen began to weep with us as he told us story after story for four hours of everything he endured simply because he wouldn't stop sharing the gospel. At one point, he described to us that three years of his salary went to buying one pig. It was like his pride and joy, this massive cultural mismatch where we just stuck down to Woolworths and buy some pork. I realized this wasn't for a meal. This was so he could rear the pig and sell it at a market and give his kids a semblance of a future. The villagers came through taunting him. Just think how horrific this would be. It's basically your life investment. Killed the animal, cooked it and ate it in front of him. He was sobbing with us. There was a moment where he lived at the bottom of a ravine and the villagers were hurtling rocks down the ravine, destroying his home. They even managed to get his newborn child out of his wife's arms and threatened to kill his baby. He managed to get his baby to safety, live for four weeks in the forest, which is actually where Open Doors came in touch with him. You see, the man on Din Venzen's left was the second convert to Christianity and he had recently endured such a beating that he needed emergency dental assistance. How extreme is that? And so Open Doors have a team on the ground. They were really uh, proud of the branding of this team. They were quite excited about this. I think it was a new development called the Rapid Response Force. They loved it. The Rapid Response Force. How cool is that? And so when an incident like this goes down, they have this covert underground network that send messages to each other. And they find out. They jump on their motorbikes and they drive 1,400 kilometers into the Vietnamese rainforest and they find these men. And they look them in the eyes and they say, Jesus still has a plan for your life. You're not forgotten. There's a church all around the world praying for you and cheering you on, championing you. But who knows, words uh, are simply not enough. They put them on the back of the motorbike, drive them back to Ho Chi Minh City. And that was why I had the privilege of meeting with these incredible men on that day. You might want to know what happened next to Din Van Zen. Well, part of Open Doors 
strength is to encourage people to remain amidst their suffering. That's why I was surprised when I heard this. They said to him, you know what, you've endured such extreme suffering. Maybe it's time for you to move to another village so that you can replenish your emotional health and, you know, become well again. Do you know what he said to us? His quote is on the screen. If I go, who will share the gospel with them? I will never forget those words. How often do we sacrifice the mission and the call of God on our life for what is more comfortable? If I leave, who will share the gospel with them? We managed to put Din Van Zen through an underground Bible college. It's almost entirely illegal. 28,000 people being trained to advance the gospel in one of the most dangerous countries on the planet. Can I just say we're sitting here in a country with little to no challenge to us on a personal level. Why are we wasting the freedoms we have? As the team joined me on stage, I'd love to encourage you around our response to persecution. Paul goes on to say, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer. We've already prayed this afternoon for the persecuted church. I'd love to encourage you to continue to pray and partner with organizations like Open Doors. And the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, on the word of supply, do you know that through your giving, to New Life Church, you were already supporting the persecuted church through Open Doors. So on behalf of Open Doors, thank you. I can tell you, seeing these uh, works firsthand, the teams are so grateful for your sacrifice and your contribution. Paul goes on though, and this is my call to you, to everyone in the room today. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. May that be our cry and our call as we leave church today that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I've boiled that down to three broad categories as we respond today. We pray for the persecuted church, we give and we go. I want to encourage you today to go, to live a life sent, commissioned, full of passion and fervor. As we've learned from our brothers and sisters, there's nothing holding us back. Why would we wait? Why would we miss this opportunity to share with our friends and our family, our co-workers, our colleagues? And as I conclude, before the team sing this beautiful song, No Longer Slaves, I want to remind you of the words of Jesus himself again. In John 12, 24, prophesying his own imminent death, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Bit of an obscure verse, but it spoke to me when I meet people like Din Venzen and Maria and Syrian refugees, people that have risked their lives to follow Jesus. That we're not just talking about a theoretical, metaphysical death in these verses. Many people are facing a literal death today. 
And I'm reminded of the book of Revelations where it says, they will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. I believe the seed is their story, their testimony, that they haven't died in vain. I see part of my role is like spreading the seed, that it would fall on fertile soil. I've been praying that this would be good soil this afternoon, that their story wouldn't be in vain, but it would reap a harvest in your life of hope and of boldness and courage, audacious faith, that you'd be willing to share Jesus and represent Him well in your communities. As the team finished with this song this afternoon, I'd like to just pray for you. And if you want to respond in prayer, I'd ask that you'd be bold enough to join us down the front. I'd love to pray with you. If you fall into two of these categories, first of all, maybe you don't know Jesus. As I said earlier, I'd love to introduce you to Him. He's a close friend of mine and He's calling you. He'd love to, he'd love to transform your life. You were born for more than a mundane, boring life. He's got a plan for you. And second of all, maybe you've grown a little cold. Maybe you're just going through the motions. You've put on the church face and you've become a little bit too professional. Maybe you want to turn up the heat a little bit on your relationship with Jesus. I would love to pray with you and I know our team would love to pray with you as well. Why don't we stand together as I close in prayer? Lord God, I thank you for the people of New Life Brisbane. And God, I pray that there would be a newfound call to represent you well, Lord, and to share your gospel with our friends and with our family. Lord God, we thank you that we don't need to be slaves to our fear anymore. But God, instead we would be uh, full of boldness, Lord Jesus, not ashamed, willing to share you well. We commit this time to you. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.